Lynn Hiles Ministries presents Dr. Lynn Hiles That You Might Have Life. And here's your host, Dr. Lynn Hiles. Welcome back to the program again this week. Thank you for joining us and taking time out of your busy schedule to watch us every week at the same time. If you've just tuned in for the first time, we are in a different time slot than we were airing before. We have moved into, as you can tell, either late night or prime time, depending on what time zone you're in uh, watching. But we thank you for taking a few moments to get to know us and our ministry. Uh, This is our, uh, let me think, this is our 13th year or 14th, I guess we're beginning our 14th year of being on full, full-time on national television. We've been on several different networks, but we are airing now on this network, and we trust that you will be blessed by the gospel of grace, the finished work of Jesus. We preach a lot about the present reality of the kingdom, and uh, we, we talk a lot about uh, uh, what grace is like. We've been in a almost a 50-week study on the book of Romans that has aired in a different time slot than now. The reason I'm telling you that is because if you have missed any of those and you are enjoying the final conclusion of this study, everything that we have aired to date is on our YouTube channel and is available to watch on demand at your leisure. It is also available in the audio portions of it on uh, our podcast, and there is an RSS feed that's also available for Android devices. And the easiest way for you to find that is to simply go to my website, and the address is on the screen of my website. In the upper right-hand corner of the opening page, there are icons for the YouTube channel and for the uh, podcast and the RSS feed. And all you have to do is tap on that, and there's a direct link that will take you there. And while you're there, just take a moment to look over a lot of the stuff. We have several books that we've written that are available to you through our website, through Amazon, on Kindle, and other outlets. You'll be blessed, I believe, to get some of this material. It's amazing to me the calls that we're getting, that we're being encouraged so much by people who are saying it is so good to finally hear some good news. I think what we've done is preached the bad news, and that's not the gospel. The good news will make you free. Now, once again, we've been in the book of Romans, and last week on the program, we talked a little bit about the 14th chapter of Romans. I'm going to pick back up here again today and read this to you, uh, and then we're going to talk about some more stuff, because it talks about, again, the first part of Romans is the diagnosis. Romans 1, 2, and 3 is God, uh, or Paul especially, assessing the condition of the entire human family, not just the Jews, but also Gentiles, insiders and outsiders, Jew and Gentile, and his conclusion after three chapters is that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and that there is none righteous, not even one. And at that point, he introduces the idea that you needed a Savior. And so then the gospel begins to be preached not only to the Jew, but also to the Gentile. And then Paul begins to unfold this incredible treatise of how the gospel works as he opens chapter 4 and starts to talk about faith righteousness. Abraham 
believed God before he was circumcised, before he ever had a son, before he ever did anything, he believed God. And because he believed God, faith caused him to account that God counted that to him for righteousness. Then you come on down through from Romans 4, 5, 6, and 7 is talking about not only the diagnosis, but the deliverance from the human condition, from the law, and from sin and death. And he takes it in Romans 5, not just to the Jew, but clear back to Adam. And this is one of the key verses to me. The Message Bible says it like this. Here it is in a nutshell. One man did it wrong and got us all this trouble with sin and death, and another man did it right and got us out of it. But more than just get us out of trouble, he got us into a life. And so he begins to tell you that one man, it was a one-man plan that got us in all this trouble with sin and death. Adam did that. So he takes us and concludes clear back to Adam how that one man did it wrong and got us in all this trouble, sin, and death, and the same deal that that one man did it wrong and got us in the trouble, another man, the last Adam, did it right and got us out of trouble. Now, I have thrilled a many a crowd by preaching, you're not in trouble anymore. And you're not in trouble. God, God is not angry with you. He is not mad at you. He is mad about you. But more than just get us out of trouble, Romans 5 says, He got us into a life, a life that goes on and on and on. See, I'm convinced that the real gospel will give you back your life, not just when you get to heaven after you've lived in 70 or 80 years of misery and then you get to go there, but because the gospel will give you back your abundant life. And chapter 6 of Romans talks about a new life, in a new land, and he starts dealing with how sin is not so much what it does to God, but what it does to you and to the people around you. Because it's this, uh, God is after that because He wants you to have the abundant life on every level. And so He comes on down through those chapters dealing with the diagnosis and the deliverance then in the, in the center part of the book of Romans. And then as you get towards the end, he starts talking about the dispensing of this life and how it looks played out in the human experience. And we started that by talking in uh, the 12th chapter about stop assuming an outward expression that does not come from within you, but, but change the outward expression. We talked about the difference between being conformed and being transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that doesn't mean you can try to renew your mind by how many scriptures you can quote. It means you start thinking in terms of who I am because of what Jesus has done to make me new creation. And so then we start getting down into how this is played out in uh, the 13th chapter. He talks about how to deal with civil government and how to deal with church issues. And, uh, and we, we, we spent, I think, five weeks on that chapter. Last week, we started dealing with the law of liberty out of chapter 14. That's where we're going to pick up again. and try. I want to try to conclude here before too long this entire book of Romans so we can start into some new things. But he starts ta- t- telling people how to uh, deal with, the, you know, start, how, how to live this life on this horizontal plane. And last week, I talked about how worship is not just vertical it's horizontal. It's we worship God not just because of our rituals and what we do vertically, but God elevated worship when Jesus says to the man who brought his gift to the altar, he said, if you bring your gift to the altar and there, remember 
that you have ought against your brother, leave your gift there and then go be reconciled to your brother because he's elevating worship to the same level as you giving your sacrifices to God is worship. But how you treat your neighbor and how you treat one another is as much a part of worship as standing in a service with your hands lifted up. But when you're, but, but as you are in the earth, a reflection of the image and likeness of God, that's how you worship God, is by acting like Daddy would act. That's how you, you, that's how you give Him praise on this horizontal level. And so he says this, and, and let me just read, and we'll try not to spend too many more uh, segments on this. He said, Receive one who is weak in faith, but not to dispute over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let him, let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. For God has received him. Who are you to judge another man's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand before, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. God is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day and another uh, esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. These are arguments that are still going on as people are learning the difference between the old and new covenant and that we're not under law anymore. And so they're trying to figure out, even as they were, Paul is, 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 is finding out here as he is writing and preaching the gospel to not just a Jewish audience, but to a Gentile audience too, that now they're coming together. There is a convergence of their cultures, and there's a clash among them because Jewish people had very, very strict dietary laws, while Gentiles did not have such strict laws. So now they're coming together, and they're having community meals, and they're having fellowship, and God has broke down this middle wall partition between Jew and Gentile, included them all in Christ. Now they're trying to figure out how do we act around each other? <laughs> because these folks eat meat. These folks don't eat meat. These folks keep a Sabbath. These folks don't keep a Sabbath. And Paul is simply saying, here's the law. Here's the law of love. Let every man be convinced in his own mind, but also don't put a stumbling block. In other words, don't intentionally try to bring offense to somebody as they are blending together in this new covenant community. So he's saying to them, you know, if one man esteems one day, all right, let him keep that day. I don't fall out with people who think, well, I think we ought to just keep the Sabbath and not work on the Sabbath. I think it's a good idea to rest. I don't think it is a legislative law any longer, and I don't think we find favor with God or don't find favor with God if we do or don't keep the law of the Sabbath, because what we find out, as Paul was saying here, is that if one man esteems that as a day, let him keep it as under the Lord. I think it is really good to set aside at least one day a week to come to the house of God and worship and be a part of community. But as, as, as the truth of the matter is, is I serve God not just on Sunday, but every day of the week. My life is a praise to Him. So I keep that, when I think about the Sabbath, I think about the rest of God. And the rest of God is more than a day of the week. It's a person, according to Colossians chapter number 2. Jesus was the fulfillment of the Sabbath. And when He even uh, said to the scribes and Pharisees, a greater then the Sabbath is here. He's Lord of the Sabbath, is that He comes to give us rest. And that's not just a physical rest, but a spiritual rest. i, I got to tell you, understanding the gospel of grace has made me just almost feeling like going, what a relief. What a rest. What a peace. 
in knowing that the work has been finished and that I can enter into rest because Jesus has finished the work. And if there's work to be done in me, He's the one that's doing the work. And that's what He begins to emphasize even to uh, Abraham in, in Romans, the fourth chapter. If you read it in the Message Bible, Abraham entered into what God was doing for him instead of what he was doing for God. He let God run the parade instead of himself run the parade. And so he was entering into the rest. And he, I believe even in what God gave the commandment concerning the Sabbath, as he was trying to show the children of Israel, I am not like your Egyptian slave masters. Take a day to rest. I'm not going to make you work 24-7. Take a day for yourself and rest. God was indicating, I'm not a taskmaster. I want you to rest. Because more flows out of rest uh, as far as our lives are concerned. I've had more real change in the climate of rest and peace than I ever did in any other thing. And so he's allowed each to be fully convinced in his own mind. He observes the day, observes it to the Lord. And he who does not observe the day... To the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, or he gives God thanks. And he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat and gives God thanks. Just be thankful whichever way. For none of us lives to himself, and no one dies for himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord, both of the dead and the living, but why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? We do more of this than anything I've ever seen. I said in one of my recent meetings, I said, hello, my name is Lynn, and I am a recovering Pharisee. <laughs> because it is very tempting to fall back into those judgmental mindsets when you find groups of people who aren't doing or keeping the same rules that you do. And some of this stuff that we fall out over, there's really no biblical argument for even under the law. It's amazing to me that we came up with stuff that wasn't even, even biblical under an old covenant paradigm. And we try to make it as hard as you possibly could and almost impossible for anybody to live. And then we had to hide from each other because if they ever find out I'm human and that I've got weaknesses, then nobody's going to like me. And all of a sudden we're into this self-absorbed, I'm holier than you are. Look at me, I've got broad phylacteries and long prayers for pretense. And that's a hypocrite and a Pharisee. So he says, why do you judge your brother? Why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God, so that each of us shall give account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another any more, but rather resolve this not to put a stumbling block or to cause to fall in our brother's way. I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. Therefore do not let your good be evil spoken of, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved of men. Therefore let us pursue the things which make for peace, and the things by which one may edify another, and do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things are indeed pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. It is good neither to eat meat or to drink wine, nor to do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Do you have faith? 
have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because he does not eat from faith. For whatever is not of faith is sin. Now, I wanted just to, I felt like I needed to touch this. I wrote some notes, especially concerning the judgment seat of Christ. Because this, I believe, would be a very important thing to add in this particular statement. I wrote in my notes, what is the judgment seat of Christ? The judgment seat of Christ is the place where Christ rewards, watch this, He rewards believers for their faithfulness on earth. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be paid back according to what he has done, while in the body, whether good or evil, and Romans 14, of course, talks about, you know, but you who eat vegetables, only why do you judge your brother or sister? And uh, are you who eat everything, why do you despise your brother or sister? For we will stand before the judgment seat of God, as it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me, and every tongue will praise, uh, confess that he is Lord. Therefore, each of us will give account to himself. Judgment, the word judgment seat here in this context comes from the Greek word bima. Let me see, I lost my spot here in my notes. It comes from the, the Greek word bima. It's the bima seat. It referred to, this Greek word is, it referred to an elevated seat where the judge of a contest sat. After the contest, the winners would assemble before the judge and receive their rewards or their crowns. It was not a seat where people were condemned. It was only a place where people were rewarded. Likewise, for believers, we will not be condemned for our sins at the judgment seat of Christ, for all of our sins were paid for on the cross by Jesus Christ. For Romans 8 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation, there's no passing of a sentence. And the main reason is because we are not under law, but under grace that there is therefore now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. At the judgment seat of Christ, there will only be reward or loss of reward. See 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12 through 15, where Paul said this is about how we build upon Christ's church. And each one must be careful how he builds, for no one can lay any foundation other than what is being laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each builder's work, each builder's work will be plainly seen, for the day will make it clear, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what kind of work each has done. If what someone has built survives, he will receive a reward. If someone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as through fire. And the judgment seat at the judgment seat of Christ, our works will be surveyed. Some works will be proven to be of low quality, like wood, hay, or stubble, and others will be high quality, like gold, and so forth. And I want you to simply see that what he's saying is that the judgment seat of Christ is not about you being saved, not saved, or a sentence of being passed that you're going to go to hell. But he's simply talking about how are you building? What are you producing? What kind of a reward are you going to get? You're going to, there's going to be reward here. In other words, what he's talking about is how you are running the race. It is almost as if he's taking this analogy from the Roman games and the gladiators or those that would run in the uh, uh, Olympics of the Roman Colosseums, and they would stand before the Bema seat and say, here, you get a crown, the gold medal. 
the bronze medal, the silver medal. That's the kind of stuff. And, and I think it is in Matthew's gospel, Jesus said the one, uh, uh, the one who has been faithful over small things will be made ruler over many things. In other words, it's about stewardship. You know, one of the things the Lord said to me back some time ago, I was in New Jersey in a meeting, and the Lord said to me, you cannot earn grace, but you can steward it. And I thought, Lord, I'm not even sure there's a scripture about stewarding grace. And sure enough, man, when I got up in my room and I put that uh, word steward in my uh, search engine for my Bible program, sure enough, it came up and talked about we are stewards of the manifold grace of God. And I think about my own gifting or my own ministry or my own money or my own health even. And I think one of the vital things that's missing in Christian circles is an understanding of stewardship. How do I steward my money? Now, does that, does that mean that what God loves one person who's rich more than the other person who's poor? Absolutely not. God loves you if you live under a bridge. But the truth of it is, is that sometimes the favor of God, the grace of God, the unmerited, unearned, deserved favor of God, someone can take sometimes little and make a lot out of it because he's a better steward than others. And then th those are principles that are not about, are you saved? Are you not saved? Are you under grace? Not under grace. No, the, the grace of God is the unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor of God. I've always said it like this. God is not mad with you if you don't give. He's not mad. But I will say this, what you don't support goes away. God's not mad with you if you don't pay your house payment. He still loves you if you're living under a bridge. But what matters is, are you going to be living in that house next week? Are you stewarding it right? I think sometimes even, and I feel like I really need to say this in this segment, because this is something where I felt, you know, some personal conviction. If you watch me over the years, like I said, we've been on 14 years now. You can see that from the time I went on TV in like 2010, that I've lost a significant amount of weight. And one of the things, I'm not trying to, to, to say this to be uh, judgmental, but I really felt like that, you know, uh, I said, Lord, the other day I said, Lord, thank you for helping me lose weight. And the Lord said to me, thank you, because you're stewarding your health. That length of days, according to the book of Proverbs, is in your own right hand. And I found out that many times, many of the saints are in the prayer lines for the same sicknesses over and over and over and over again, when what I want to tell, you, tell them many times is, and I, I don't want this to sound judgmental, but you don't need another prayer line. You need someone to help you with some dietary instruction that can help you make better choices to be able to steward your health. And I think the Lord will thank you for that because you can lengthen your own days because wisdom and understanding are a tree of life and that you prosper and be in health even as your soul prospers. And your soul is this thing between your ears called your mind, your will, and your emotions. Your health and your wealth depend on how you think. Now, I'm not talking about performance-based theology, but I'm telling you this works for sinners and saints. In other words... You don't have to plant a garden this spring. You don't have to plant tomatoes. You don't have to plant corn. But if you don't plant that, you're going to have to go purchase it from somebody who did or trusted. So one of those planted way too much is going to share their bounty with you. And I think that's wonderful also because maybe you share your bounty with them on some other level. But what I'm simply saying is, is that there are still principles 
of sowing and reaping. And that is not just with your finances. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, he will also reap. My son and I were just talking before we came on camera about how people can make the same amount of money that you do, and they're broke, while others can build wealth. Because I'm telling you, wealth and and health are dependent upon how you think and being able to get the right information and the right truth that can help you to be able to operate in this. But what Paul is dealing with in this Romans segment is he's dealing with what it means to live in this faith, to live this faith out in a world that's no longer under law. Now the dietary laws are not in place. So how do you treat your brother who's offering meat? (coughs) And how do you treat someone who feels convicted not to eat meat? Well, you have to honor both of them as much as be possible. For whatever is not of faith is sin, is what he says in the last part of this. And one of the things that I saw uh, is that, you know, in the early days, when I would do something, let's say, uh, uh, you know, back in the early days of legalism, we believed if you wore shorts, it was a sin. And I can remember people say, well, I'm convicted that if I wear shorts, that it's a sin. And so if they put on a pair of shorts, it violated their conscience. It was not of faith. Unto them, it was sin. In other words, they were missing the mark. So I think what we've done is create such standards, and we've created such stuff that, uh, you know, that our faith is contingent upon certain things that we do or don't do, or what we eat or don't eat, or what we drink or don't drink. I know there's a lot of debate, and I don't even really want to get into it about whether Christians should eat or drink wine, but this is what Paul's talking about here. One person might be offended by that, and another person is not. And one of the things I found out is when you travel internationally, a lot of stuff we preach in America is simply cultural. The issue is, is it in moderation? Is it a violation of the conscience? And if it is, I've seen uh, you know people that, that do things that violated their faith, and so the moment they believe, that they're not saved anymore because they've acted in a certain way, it becomes sin because it has violated their faith. But if you're strong in faith, what Paul is saying is if you're strong in faith, in other words, it's no longer an offense to me to wear shorts. It's no longer an offense to me to see a movie. It's no longer an offense to me, you know, and some of the things that we thought were sin back in the day because my faith has grown to the fact that I realize it's not about meat or drink. The kingdom of God is not meat or drink, and he's talking and connecting that to an old covenant paradigm that the old covenant is, the new covenant is not about the drink offerings or the meat offerings or the keeping of dietary rules. The kingdom of God is righteousness. That's a gift. Peace that comes when you realize the gift and joy that flows from that. And we're just about out of time on this segment. So take a moment, if you'd like to sow a seed into this ministry to help us stay on the air, to go to the website right there. There's a place where you can give your, through your credit card, through our PayPal portal. You can give a one-time gift, or you can set up a monthly recurring debit if you'd like to become a monthly partner. Please consider praying about being a monthly partner with this ministry. Also, you can send a check or money order to the address that will come on the screen or you can call the number that will come on the screen. If you don't get an answer, leave a message if you'd like a call back, and someone from my team will return your call. But we do need your help to stay on the air, and we thank you for your giving, and God bless you until next week. I am excited to announce the release of my latest book titled The Great I Am. In this book, we will explore the seven times in the Gospel of John that Jesus says, I am. 
When he uses that phrase, it is always in contrast to something from the Old Covenant. For instance, they thought Moses and the law was the door into the sheepfold, but Jesus said to them, I am the door. They thought that Israel was the true vine, but Jesus said to them, I am the vine, you are the branches. As you read the pages of this book, you will discover that Jesus removed the covenant of death and replaced it with the covenant of life. Get your copy of the book, The Great I Am, today.